Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your blessings in our life. For Summit 3, uh, that it was insightful, that it was inspiring, that it pushed us outside of our comfort zone a little bit. Lord, I ask for your presence to be thick and rich today, Lord, as, as we started the process of opening our hearts and our minds and our imagination to how to reach this community. God, we know you're faithful, and we know as we start to open up, Lord, and open up to you that you'll fill us all the more. So we ask you to start today through the worship here, through our fellowship, through kind and supportive words, through prayers, and through scripture, God. We ask you to fill us all the more. We could come to know you through this text. We could come to be better friends and more, uh, more community-like together. Maybe we would love you all the more for it. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, by way of quick catch-up, we're in Nehemiah 7 today. Uh, the first six chapters of Nehemiah are the story of a young man from, uh, with a call from God upon his life who's sent to help restore God's city. As we covered in earlier chapters, he actually served as a cupbearer to the king. He didn't have a religious role. He didn't have a, a formal government role in Israel. He was just a guy who found himself in a critical place at a critical time and had God's call on his heart. And it's interesting that, you know, looking through our Bible, we see all the time God uses folks to do things that seem almost impossible amidst opposition internally as well as externally, that some of God's most recognized heroes throughout this book seem utterly unable to do the tasks that God has before them, and in fact, they are completely unable to do the tasks that God has before them. If we get nothing else out of Nehemiah, I think that theme maybe is the most prominent one that, that this is all by God's hand and that growth in our community and growth through the summits and reaching the community and even sustaining us and growing as a church will be all by God's hand. We pick up Nehemiah in chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> he says, Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. My first point from today's text is that our church, like Israel, our church is more than a building. Our church is more than a building. Often in, in casual conversation, we can use the word church to reference the building, right? Like it's Sunday morning and I'm going to church. Tuesday evening, we have a transition team meeting, and we're going to meet at the church. But in fact, when the Lord talks about the church and the, the language that we import for church, it comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which was translated into Latin, which means a word that alliterates like our word for church today. In Matthew 16, 18, we pick up this word. When Jesus tells Peter, I tell you that you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church, my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, we know Jesus calls Peter the rock, but it's not for his carpentry skills. It's not for his skill with a sword, and it's not because he might even have been a particularly fortuitous guy. 
It was that spiritually, the Lord was making him part of the foundation of the early church, that being the body of believers that Jesus had called to himself, taught the gospel, and then sent out to all the world. In Nehemiah's case, he did similar to what Jesus did. He got God-fearing, faithful men, and he brought them up into leadership. See, the city at this point had walls around it and a door, doors, but it had a spiritual vacancy. It had a spiritual vacancy. Nehemiah's first work after he establishes the outside of the building is to appoint singers. Singers would lead the community in their adoration of God. They're like the worship team, right? Like Sunday service is not quite so cool without Dave Rossing up there. Can I get an amen? amen? In Nehemiah's case, the past couple of months had been rebuilding, uh, and the city's efforts had focused on the material, the economic, and the safety issues of that city. But once that had been established, Nehemiah's greatest priority was to assure that God was at the heart of the personal, professional, and national lives of all of the inhabitants. As such, the first thing he does after establishing the wall is move to employ spiritual leadership in, helps, in hopes to cultivate a spiritual life for the community. He tabs the temple singers, he tabs some priests, and he tabs some guards to guard the walls against incoming marauders. According to Ephesians, kind of like to, to build on this theme of empowering leadership, one of the verses that we at Alliance and throughout CMA look to as to what leaders do comes out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. I'll read it to you. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The part that's emphasized in that is, as he lists all of these prophetic and spiritual gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, they all, no matter what their gift, have one call, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, right? That's what leaders do in our community, no matter what your gift is, whether it's as an organizer, as an administrator, as a speaker, as a teacher, we equip saints to do the work of the ministry. In this case, Nehemiah found some steadfast folks who longed after God and appointed them to take charge of those ministries. As leaders, we have to come to the reality that we can't be everywhere and do everything. You know, I, I gotta be honest, I've, I've kind of a creative ADD mind and it's easy to get a tendency to wander with it. If I'm not careful, I can get too involved in other work and then all of a sudden the stuff on my plate can pile up. As a pastor, I wanna help the discipleship ministry, the missions ministry, I wanna hang out with the worship guys. I want to do stuff around the office. I want to go out and have coffee, do social hour, grab dinner. Like, there's so much on my plate that I could possibly do. And granted, I want to be involved in some level in all of those things. 
But my job as a leader is more to cast vision for the church and not to micromanage, because those don't produce the best results. In fact, I've had to discipline myself to not always have an opinion in every meeting that I'm in, and that's proven to make leadership more effective. Yet it's often true that churches can expect the pastor to have to know everything and have to be everywhere. If you're not careful, that can make the pastor serve as not not intellectually your savior, but as kind of a functional savior within the community. If he's the point man for everything, sooner or later when the church grows, he will also become the bottleneck. See, it's a mistake if we judge qualities of the Christian life and Christian leadership by the world's standards. In the world in business, when you have more power and stuff comes, more things come across your desk, oftentimes that can lead to a raise, a promotion, stock options, security. Yet, as the Bible talks about leaders equipping the saints, part of the work is to quite literally take some of the stuff that lands on your plate and equip and teach others to do it. Some folks in church leadership circles even say, if you can find somebody who can do something 70% as well as you can, let them do it. And I've met guys who run really big churches. They say that they drop that number down to like 60%. Because if you give something to somebody who can do it 60 or 70% as well as you, guess what? In a couple months, maybe that'll be 70 or 85%. And in a couple more months, it'll be 80 or 90%. And there's more people doing gospel-centered work in your church and your community. See, Nehemiah, one of his keys to leadership is he releases more than he controls. Mature leaders put others, other people of trust, in positions of influence. They empower people to do work and take ownership knowing, often by painful experience, that the more they control, the less things get done. Moses did similar things. This isn't just a New Testament concept. It goes back to the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 18, verses 15 through 22, Moses is talking to his father-in-law. He says, the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Let's be real. Moses, the most qualified guy maybe in the whole Old Testament, and certainly the most qualified guy like we would find in our neighborhood to dispute anything with, right? The guy's got to, I mean, split the Red Sea, miracles, the staff, the snake, like whatever you say, Moses. Like if you say God says, I believe you. But yet, Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you, and you cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to them. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way that they are to live and how they're to behave. 
But select capable men from amongst the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over the thousands, the hundreds, the fifties, and the tens. Have them serve as judges to the people, and then have them bring difficult cases to you. The simple cases they can decide for themselves, that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. Now, I'll say this, if, if Moses trying to lead the people by himself was too much for him, both for me and for anybody else who comes in here, it's going to be too much for them, too. Nehemiah is teaching us through his example to find other godly men, trust them with things, empower them with things, and then, lay, and then let them go. Verse 3, it says, And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. While they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from amongst the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people in it were few, and no houses had been built. My second point from today is Nehemiah protects the community without making it protectionistic. He protects the community without making it protectionistic. As an example, Nehemiah realized that if he were to have the door of the city shut all day, you wouldn't be able to get goods in and out. You wouldn't have trade. Lifting construction materials for houses over the wall is quite problematic, especially in the hot sun, especially like they didn't even have air conditioning as far as I can tell. That being said, they would open the door during the middle of the day when it was wise to do it. Here's a couple reasons why it was wise. It's hot and sunny out in the middle of Israel. For an enemy to mount an attack and come any great distance, number one, you'd see them coming. And number two, they'd be all hot and tired by the time they try to rush your door. If you shut that door and you're not hot and tired and you're fortified, you have an advantage. Opening your door in the middle of the day is a lot less risky than leaving it open in the middle of the night. Can anybody say an amen? Amen. It's okay to lock your doors at night. You're still a good Christian for that. Um, The second point is that Nehemiah recognized the specific dangers related to his position and knew when was a good time to have the doors open and when was maybe not a good time to have the doors open. Nehemiah recognized that earlier attacks could easily be resumed And he appointed leaders and gave them instructions with the idea of making them responsible for the security of Jerusalem, but also giving them enough information and past history so that they could make wise decisions. It's true today that the church needs to be on guard against certain things of the world, but if we shut ourselves up in a building, we won't thrive and we won't be able to save them. Another point to this, my third point for the day, is that everyone counts to God. Everyone counts to God. Verse 5, it says, Then God put my heart into to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found written in it 
big swig. No, that was not in there. These were the people of the province who came out of captivity, of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had to carry into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judea, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Ariziah, and the list goes on. I'll spare us. Thank you, Eric Morse. It's interesting. Here's what I'll point out is, as a Westerner and a non-Jewish person, it's hard for me to read through some of these genealogies, and to be real, it's hard for me sometimes to be impacted by those, because I don't know who these people are. Right? Some of them, I, I don't even know historically where they track through the Bible. Some of them, I don't know that they're named again. Here's the thing, though. If you lived in that town, you would. You'd know their names. You'd know where they were from. you know what they did. you know that their family was the history of carpenters. Maybe great-grandpa helped your brother build his house. You'd know where they lived, what parsonage of land that they came from, and you'd know that by listing things out, it was a recognition of who was in our community and the roles that they played. The temple servants, uh, sons, oh, the sons of Solomon's servants, Satoy, Sephira, Perida, Jala, the sons of Dacron, the sons of Shephthiah, Hattil, and all the temple servants, and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. Skipping down a little bit. And the governor told them they were not... Uh, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as if unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Umen and Thurman should arise. One of the interesting things that I've noticed about Nehemiah and building his wall and then the next stage of building is that he realized it took a community to build and support the wall as much as it took a wall to build and support the community. See, Nehemiah's only project wasn't strictly architectural. You'll notice that he puts cultural pieces in place. He puts religious pieces in place. He puts moral security and ethical guards in place. And he puts godly leaders in place. See, there was a sense that community wasn't rebuilt until there was social order within the community. That God, in ordaining the nation of Israel, as we noticed through the Ten Commandments and some of the Old Testament law, that God had a specific order that was helpful for people to flourish. And that God always wants to revive his relationships with his people. He counts each one of us. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, But we should always give thanks for you, God. Beloved brethren by the Lord, because God has chosen you, meaning us, from the beginning for salvation, that through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. In Ephesians, he also says, 
chapter 1, verses 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. God has a purpose for us, all of us. He knew it before we were born. He knew where we'd be today. He ha- part, of the, part of the battle that we fight with culture over things like abortion, it isn't that we're fighting over a mass of tissue and, and when that tissue is viable. It's that we believe there's a divine purpose in life that God preordained before that life ever even became what we would call it as life. My next point, my fourth point, transition comes with hard decisions. Transition comes with hard decisions. As we see from the text that there's a change in where people are going to live. There's a change in the roles that people are going to have. Different folks are coming into the priesthood while some are leaving. Some folks who had a different job are now singers in the temple of God. These folks that served civilly before have now been appointed leaders by Nehemiah. Nehemiah had a bunch of hard decisions to make for the community. And like Moses, he took advice to help parlay some of that decision-making authority to get more wisdom in it and so that he didn't become the bottleneck and become the problem. Have you ever heard of a plumb line? I know you have. Has anybody here not heard of a plumb line? A plumb line, a plumb bob or a plummet is the technical name for it, is a weight, usually with a pointed tip at the bottom, and it's suspended from a string to use as a vertical line. That's important if you're doing something like framing a house and you want to know if your, if your post is straight, right? Because if one post tilts a little ways, then the one on the corner is going to have to tilt as well and the house won't be straight. So carpenters will hang by a string this weight and because of gravity it's going to be straight up and down. And that's how builders before things like carpenter squares could see whether or not what they were building was straight up and down. Nehemiah was bringing a sense of plumb back to the community. They, the things that Israel had done in the past had worked for the moment, but there was a little bit of adjusting happening so that it could work in the long term. Nehemiah is implementing needed changes, and although change is never easy, and quite frankly, most of us avoid it, Nehemiah would have to leave with courage to push forward and lead through diligence and through uncomfortable change, to challenge the status quo in which others had grown comfortable. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that he's allowed to just go run over people. That's not good. But there's a difference. There is a difference in being courageous and being ruthless. Nehemiah had to be courageous to rebuild the walls and rebuild the culture. And he had to also get comfortable challenging mediocrity, right? That was part of our process in in Summit 3 and saying, hey, there's these areas of the church that 
like, frankly, we've not been excellent at. How do we start renewing ourselves and our community through efforts challenging the mediocrity that's been? In case you don't know, you can ruffle somebody's feathers when you start to challenge the way that they've been doing things. Yeah, you ever, you ever, heard, you ever heard this phrase? Oh, but we've always done it that way. That's too hard. Why so much work? Oh, sorry, transition team. This was all of our meetings, right? <laughs> See, it's incredibly difficult to recover from complacency. It's almost more difficult sometimes to recover from complacency than it is from something done poorly, because at least when you do something poorly, there's hard consequences, right? You fail at something, you learn a lesson the hard way. When you do something bad, like there's immediate response. When you just kind of float, it's just sort of this long-term slide. Those who talk about change and talk about leadership say that those can be some of the toughest scenarios to turn around because it's been okay for long enough and to make it good is going to ruffle feathers, be painful, and make me uncomfortable. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 4 says, One who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. That speaks to how in season, it can look difficult on a day-to-day basis, like in talking about the wind, you won't sow. Well, if I, if I spread seed today, there's wind blowing to the west, and I don't want my seed to carry that way. And the next day, well, there's wind blowing to the east. If I spread my seed today, I don't want it to blow that way. The writer of Ecclesiastes had witnessed people looking at the conditions for so long that they missed seasons of harvest. And he looked at people checking the weather for so long that they missed getting their crops out of the ground. Nehemiah, in building the community, was into establishing good habits from the start. Maybe he had learned from Moses, and that's why he's establishing leaders right off of the bat once he gets that wall up. My next point is that the people gave to the process. The people gave to the process. Verse 66, the the sub-chapter, subheading to this chapter is the totals of people and gifts. The whole assembly was 42,000, besides the servants who were 7,000. I'm going to sum up. 700 horses, 250 mules, 400 camels, 6,700 donkeys? Who needs that many donkeys? Some of, the heads the, <laughs> some of the heads of the father's house gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand derricks, a derricks of gold coin, a thousand gold coins, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, 500 minas of silver, Another one gave 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,000 minas of silver. The rest of the people gave another 20,000 gold coins and 2,000 minas of silver and 67 
priest's garments. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all of Israel lived in their town. All of Israel. The capstone verse of having accomplished what he set out to accomplish doesn't just talk about the wall and maybe how watertight it was or how great the architecture was. It doesn't just talk about the temple and having a service there. It talks about the sum of the community. The Levites, the priests, right? The gatekeepers, the worship band. Some of the people had moved back in. The temple servants and all of Israel had been restored. The story is about rebuilding the wall, but the heart of the story is not about the wall. The wall is really about the people. And for those who couldn't be actively part of the wall, for whatever reason, they weren't there, they couldn't leave their businesses, they couldn't yet move into their homes, they choose to give. They choose to give to the community. We won't have time today for an adequate covering of the topic of giving, but just something that I notice about it. Giving is an act of worship. Just as the wise men, when they went to go see Jesus, bowed down and worshiped the Lord first, then they gave, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's a picture of our act of giving when we give our tithes and offerings on Sunday morning. And it's a way for each of us to show our love and appreciation for the Lord and what He does. When we give our tithes to the Lord, it's because we have a right attitude. It's because we see that as a part where we can contribute to God's wall, to God's community, and ultimately to His glory through the things that He's given us. Tell you a funny story about a pastor. There's a pastor of a church that didn't have a reputation for being very generous. So this sneaky pastor decided he was going to do something about it. It was drastic. Um, the first Sunday of the new year, when the, when the church traditionally takes up pledges for the new year, the pastor stood up and said the, said the following, from now on, instead of putting your pledges in a sealed envelope and turning them into the church office, all pledges will be made publicly in the worship service and we'll stand up to let folks know that we're pledging. So let's get started. All of you who pledge to give $10 a week, please stand up. And as soon as he did this, he pushed a button. That button was wired to the chairs electrically, so it shocked the folks in the congregation. And a bunch of them stood up. Immediately, most of the congregation jumped to their feet. The pastor then reached down, adjusted the knob, and said, all, you all of you who plan to pledge to give $20 a week, please stand up. He turned up the electricity a little bit and pressed the button. Boof! Even more of the congregation stood up. That second volt being stronger than the first one. Each time the pledge amount was raised along with the voltage, after church, 
the pastor and the deacons went to the back of the church and congratulated one another, gave each other five high fives. Of course, the enthusiasm ended when the deacon who was shutting the doors came in and said, you know what, uh, pastor, I hate to tell you, but some of our church members were electrocuted because they refused to stand up. (laughs) What we've been given counts. Who we are counts and what we've been given counts towards what we're doing. What can we do in light of all this? In taking a look at what he's done for us, how he's rebuilding our community, but at the end of this process is the rebuilding of our hearts and our neighborhood and building us up for him. One thing we can do is we can take an inventory. Take an inventory. What would it take, not just to have good teams and, and a, a mega-functional office and you know, some drapes on the, on the wall and a bunch more people coming. Like, all those things would be good for rebuilding the wall. But what else would it take for spiritual lives here to be deeply, deeply fed and affected? Another thing that we can do besides taking an inventory is we can start to walk into the future Right? Like, like when Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall, he recognized that some of the old things would change and that those things would, would change permanently. He'd probably say to us, don't be overwhelmed, that there's hope coming, that there's a bright future ahead of us. A third thing that we can do is bring back things that should be here, that should be here. A fresh commitment to all aspects of church life, a new hope for the future, a commitment to what we can be as a congregation. One pastor said this, you can be committed to church, but not committed to Christ, but you can't be committed to Christ without being committed to the church. I'll invite the the worship band to come back up. See, our hope as Christians is not in the wall that we're building or the summits and the plans that we've been given. Those Those are a pathway. Those are a pathway to share, to preparing our hearts to meet the neighborhood, to share the gospel with them, to opening ourselves up to the Holy Spirit so that He can work with us and in us and through us and change us for His glory. The gospel is real simple. It's kind of this. Everybody in this room and everybody on this earth, here's the bad news. You're not perfect. And here's the worst news. Heaven is. So unless you do something about that, like, you're not going to get invited. Here's the thing you can do, though. Jesus Christ came to earth to atone for all of our sins. All of our sins. Accepting him into your life, it's like Jesus talks about it like a seed in the ground that's going to reproduce a harvest. Accepting Jesus Christ allows God to forgive your sins here on earth 
and for you to find that sanctified, divine perfection that will allow you to come join us in glory with God forever. Let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we lift up and commit this season of transition to you, Lord. We ask for your gospel to be working in our lives, whether we don't know you, whether we've just learned to accept you, or whether we're long-tenured Christians, God, we know we have that need for regeneration through your word and through your spirit, changing us, taking our old nature off, giving us a new nature and a new heart. Lord, we'd like to praise you for Summit 3, for the change in our people and our processes and in how we share the great things that you've given us. We petition you that the folks writing those reports could have ease and clarity in writing them, that they could find a little rest, and that, Lord, that you would make the future be ever much brighter than the seasons we've walked through already. In your precious name, Jesus, amen.